Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbarnwell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. Well, greetings in, again in Jesus' name. Uh, wonderful for us to gather again to share um, a few thoughts from God's Word about the current season in which we are living. Um, God, in various cycles and seasons, brings specific truth in a very restorative manner back to the body of Christ. And we are living in a day which many people globally are calling the apostolic. In some circles it's called the apostolic reformation. But there is a growing consensus by authentic and valid servants of God globally that the global church is most certainly in a new epoch of God's dealings with it. And God deals cyclically with the church. And in different eras or epochs of time, you will get various emphases, different emphases of God uh, brought to bear upon the church. We call them kairos moments. And in those kairos moments, uh, kairos is the Greek word for time. In the Greek, there are two words translated time. One is um, kairos and one is chronos. Kronos is the passing of moments. Kronos is the passing of chronology. We get the English word chronology from the Greek word chronos, translated in English as time. And so we can live in chronos and observe the passing of seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years, decades, centuries, and so on. In Kronos, there is a different time concept called Kairos. Everyone say Kairos. Right? In which, in fact, the Greek definition of Kairos is a season that is characterized by certain opportune moments in which certain preordained events should take place. So, in time, chronology, chronos, God will impose His kairos. So you can be living in time, but be aware of a particular emphasis of God that is impregnating upon your earthly time-space reality, called kairos. It's important for you and I that in that kairos, in which certain and opportune time, everyone say opportune time. So it's, it's a season in which you need to be aware of, this is no ordinary time. We're living in Kronos, but there is a distinct download of certain things that God wishes to offload or unlock upon a people that must be captured within that space in which God desires to do that. 
And so every kairos is characterized by certain events, by certain restorations of truth to the body of Christ. And in this season, which many people are terming the apostolic prophetic, it is marked by a restoration of truth once lost. Now, there are many definitions of the apostolic out there. In fact, there are many spurious representations of the apostolic as well. Not everything claiming to be apostolic is truly apostolic. Not everything claiming to be prophetic is truly prophetic. And you have to be highly discerning to sift out the false from the true. At a very basic level, the term apostolic refers to the restoration of everything that was authentically in the mind of God before time began, restored back to His church. Right? It's a moving back to the most authentic ways in Christ. The most true and the most authentic belief systems, doctrine, what we believe. The most authentic expressions of the church, how we do church, how we compose, how the church comprised. And what should the church be doing? The execution of God's global purposes upon the earth through His body called the church. So we're moving away from anything false, both in terms of what we believe and what we do, and we're going back to the recovery of truth positions locked up in the mind of God. We're in a season of great restoration. For me, it's very exciting that we're in a season of great reformation. But you know, in a season in which, in this kairos, in this epoch, that is characterized by certain opportune moments and certain events and um, truth have got to be restored to the body of Christ, what usually happens is the restoration of truth will always confront illegal and erroneous positions in our mind. This is a day of great confrontation and a great provocation. But I want to encourage you, if ever God presents to you something true, that challenges something false to which you are holding on to, you better be in that season, be prepared to relinquish the false and embrace the true. Otherwise, if you hold on to that which is erroneous, which in your mind is perceived as true, but when the light of God's word comes with apostolic clarity, it reveals to you the error of your position. And in that time, you have to become like a little child Unless you become like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom. This is a season of unlearning to relearn. Tell your neighbor, unlearn to relearn. One of the great things that God is restoring back to His body the church is a reappreciation for him as father. Everyone say father. father. Right? And for a reappreciation and a reunderstanding, if you would, of your identity as his son. We are sons of God, I said to you yesterday. And God is bringing the entire church back to the supremacy of the Father in all things. That the Father might be over all, in all, and 
and through all. To get to that place, he has a methodology of installing a certain principle or conduit to get the job done. That is his church. But how you comprise of church, how you envision church to be construed or constituted, will determine how church will effectively execute its function. If your definition is wrong of church, the church's ability to execute God's predetermined will will be compromised. How we define the church is very important for revealing or unlocking the church's potential to execute the plans and purposes of God in the earth. Many churches are institutional in composition, hierarchical, denominational, where there's, where there's a void of not only spirit life, but there's a total absence of the nature and the will of the Heavenly Father permeating the entirety of their systems, their operations, their procedures, their practices, and particularly their belief systems, their doctrine. But the Father wants to be over all, in all, and, and through all. I want to emphasize this. To get the job done, part of the composition of the church has got to change. And in this weekend, we're going to be dealing with the principle of fathering and sonship. And you will see the order of God's house has got to do with returning to an arrangement of His house, the church, in the order of fathers and sons. Because the church must exactly mirror everything He is. And if He in deity is made up of Father, Son, Spirit, that dynamic of Father, Son, Spirit must be overtly, demonstrably notable in the house of God. As it is in heaven, so must it be on the earth. And if the body of Christ does not adequately represent Christ, the head of the body, then the head or the body is disconnected from the head. In many circles of church, we have headless bodies claiming to be the body of Christ, but in that body, the head, Christ, is not seen. Jesus said, or they asked Jesus, where do you stay? He said, come in. Come in. See. The birds have nests, the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has got no place to lay what? Just knock your head like this. He was speaking allegorically. He was not literally saying, he was speaking prophetically. He was not, yes, there's there's a literal application, meaning I've got no fixed abode, no house. If you're going to follow me, you are saying to them, you have to be prepared to migrate. You have to abandon fixedness and come on a journey. But the greater truth he was saying is that my head is always looking for a landing place. I need somewhere to lay my mind, my will, my thoughts, my intentions. What better place for him to lay his head than on his body? Tell your neighbor, he is the head of his body. Do you know that everybody needs a head? Not everybody, everybody needs a head, right? 
if you have a headless body, you are dead. So the body cannot function without the head. And who is the head of the body? Christ is the head of His body. What we are doing, we are looking, and we, what we are going to do tonight is, I'm going to painstakingly go to the Scriptures, look again at the principle of Christ, who is the head of His body, see the dynamics in Christ that should be obvious in His, in His body, and if the body is not reflective of the head, we need to adjust the body to conform to the pattern in the head. Amen? It says that we might, Ephesians 4 we read yesterday, that we might grow up into Him in all things. Amen? Everyone do this with your hands. Grow up into Him. So He is all things. The church must grow up into Him. Without Him, the head, the church cannot grow up into anything abstract or apart from Christ, the head of His body. He is the head of His church. He is the head of His body. There are spurious heads in some sectors of the body. There are some false heads that really need to be decapitated. By the proclamation of this truth, I speak to you prophetically tonight. I'm not just speaking to you. I'm speaking to this whole region in the atmosphere. That there will come, I prophesy, a decapitation of any headship over churches that is not reflective of the nature and the character of Christ. You will see this happen in the next few years. Some churches will actually shut down because they are not reflective of Him, the head. God is in a very militant mood in the season. He's going to become intolerant of anything that's not fully expressed or expressive of everything that He stands for. You see, global moves of God, where God is almost in a judgmental mood, not in a negative sense, but there's a serious mood in God um, that is so determined on getting the church back to the original design that He had for it from before time began. And this goes out as a warning to anyone who may be listening to this tape, that if you continue your leadership of the house of God, apart from clearly revealed principles in the Word of God, by which you should be functioning, then this comes as a warning to you. So I, I urge you, consider your ways and come back to the original blueprint of the Lord. Amen? Tell your neighbor, this is a season of great reformation. This is not revival. This is reformation. There's a difference. Revivals can come and go. But reform means I will get you back to the original form. Right? The word reformation in the Greek is diothorsis. Book of Hebrews chapter 9. Everyone say diothorsis. We get the word orthopedic from that Greek word. Orthopedic surgeons, their focus is bone structure. Skeletal structure. God is resetting the structure of the church. The internal configuration of the church. Right? He's resetting bones. And you know, to reset some bones, you have to break some bones. To reset them right. Amen? Tell your neighbor your bones are going to be broken tonight. <laughs> you know what God wants to realign to accuracy? Right? 
You know, I would rather be reformed than revived. For if I'm revived, I usually, by past experience, have to wait for the next revival to pep me up. But if I'm reformed internally, I'm forever changed structurally. So my outward, external pattern of behavior and lifestyle will always be correct in God. Amen? We will always have seasons of revival. I'm telling you by the Spirit of the Lord, in this epoch of time in which we are living in, it's a day of reformation. It's a day when God is seriously bringing reformation. You see, we reform that which was in its truest original form, but became deformed, but now has to return back to the original form. Hmm? Every deformation in the body of Christ is being challenged to reformation. Amen? Hallelujah. Now, we, okay, we put this... Um, we're going to use the PowerPoint just to help us um, proceed. Justin, is it possible to put this on so I can see it in the front? This on the... If you don't mind. I'll just... It'll prevent me from keep looking back. Amen? The Bible says don't look back. Amen. Put this off. Yeah, thanks so much. Perfect, thanks. Amen. Thank God for technology. Amen. Um, that's my website. If you would like to access any other additional resource, please feel free to consult that. All the resources available on the website is absolutely free of charge. So whatever you need, you can... You can download. Amen? Uh, are we? Is it? I'll just, I'll use the, I'll use the arrow key. Hallelujah. Okay. Amen. So we're looking at the issue of spiritual fathering and sonship, principles of the father-son um, dynamic, extrapolated from within the framework of the book of Ruth. How many people read the book of Ruth? Amen? If you haven't, you're rootless. <laughs> Amen. I hope to get started in Ruth tonight, um, if time permits, but definitely by tomorrow morning. Um, and evening, the entire day tomorrow will be devoted to uncovering principles um, from, from the book of Ruth. Amen? So, let's go see. Yesterday, I explained to us that you need to be the Son of Man and the Son of God. And we looked at this scripture from Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38. It says this, when Jesus began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as it was supposed, who? The, the son of, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Matat, etc. We leave a few verses out. Right through, jump down to verse 38. And it says he was the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So, it's amazing that Jesus, Jesus was the son of Joseph and he was the son of God. He was the son of man 
and he was the son of God. It's important for you to understand the necessity to relate as the son of man and the son of God. God will place a man in your life, or women, who will function as a spiritual father to guide you to maturity in Christ so that your disposition as son of God will come to full maturation. And I will demonstrate this to you hopefully by Sunday morning um, when we look specifically at the life of Jesus and how these two dynamics within him were integrally linked. He was both the son of Joseph, but he was the son of God. In Luke 2 it says he subjected himself to Joseph. At 12 years old, remember? He subjected. Everyone says subject. Right? He put himself under the tutelage, the mentorship, the fathering grace of a man. And you only then read about him at 30 years old. When he comes at 30 at the River Jordan and the Heavenly Father says, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. You will never hear the affirmative declaration of your divine sonship from the Heavenly Father, my son in whom I am well pleased until you've learned the principle of being able to subject yourself to the guidance, the discipline, the reproof, the rebuke, the counsel, the teaching of an earthly man that God puts in your life to represent Him, the Heavenly Father, in an earthly domain to guide you. The one Son of Man and Son of God positions are interconnected. Amen? Many people argue, I'm a son of God. I don't need any leader to tell me what to do. Totally unbiblical. Totally self-deceived. God will test your obedience to Him by calling you to submit to a man that He will put in your life to submit to. Failure to submit to that man disqualifies your maturation in your divine sonship to a place where the Heavenly Father can say, My son, in whom I am well pleased. Amen? Now, let's go on. I'm going to try and go a bit fast tonight because we've got tons of scripture to work through. So Jesus was both the Son of Man and the Son of God. So sonship is basically twofold. There's divine sonship, you're a son of God, and there's what we term spiritual sonship in that you are son of man, as it were. Okay? Now please understand those two dynamics. Before we proceed, I need to lay a strong foundation in your understanding that the body of Christ is the family of God. Tell your neighbor, we are family. Come on, say it again, we are family. Say it like you meet it, we are family. Amen. We are family. Now, 1 Timothy 3 verse 15 says, But in case I'm delayed, I write to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in what? Everyone say the household. The household of God, which is what? So is the church the house of God? Yes. So the house of God is the church of the living God. And the church of God should be what? The pillar and support, the ground, the foundation of of truth. Right? The pillar and support of of truth. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to 
all people, but especially to those who are what? The household of faith. Here again in this verse, we see a reference to the church in terms household of faith. Household of faith. 1 Peter 2 and verse 5 says, You also as living stones are built up as what? So are we a physical house? Are we an ordinary house? No, we are a spiritual house. And it says, a holy, for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the house is spiritual in nature. Its composition is spiritual, not natural. Right? The, the church is not the building you come to. The church is made up of living stones. Sons of God that make up the family of God or the, the house of God. Ephesians 2 from verse 19 says, So then when you, are, when you are no longer strangers, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are what? God's house. Tell your neighbor, come on, I want to stress this. Tell someone next to you, you are God's house. Now say it more correctly. We are God's house. Right? You see, no, no Christian privately or individually makes up the house of God. It's always plural. Fellow citizens with the saints. In our corporate dimension, we constitute the house of God. There's no man that can ever be a family on his own. Right? Right? Many people say, God, I love you. But your other children, I'm not sure. You cannot love God without loving His other sons. And you've got to come to an appreciation of the corporate and the, 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 the corporate nature and the family dynamics within the house of God. Amen? Do you love the church? Come on. The Bible says Jesus loved the church and He gave Himself for it. You must get to a place where you love the body of Christ. Right? You must look forward to gatherings. Right? I hope no one is, un- is here under duress. Right? David did not say, I was mad when they said to me, let us go to the house of God. He said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of God. At the thought of gathering, it welled up joy in the heart of the, of the psalmist. Repeat after me, I am glad to be here. Right? And there, there must come this family ethos, this relational dynamic where the spirit of Father is pervading through everybody and we all love each other. Love must typify the house. Amen? There must be no arrogance, no pride, no racism, no, no, no uh, prejudice of any kind, no social distinctions, race distinctions, class distinctions. The Bible says we are all one in Christ. Amen? So we don't even know each other after race. We know each other after grace. Amen? Amen? This is strange that a black pastor, not even South African, (laughs) is pastor of what seems like predominantly white congregation. That is the grace of God in action. Amen? And I want to commend you for that. Amen? You're becoming a model that could be imported for the world to see. Amen. We don't know any man, Paul says, after the flesh. We know a man after the spirit. Hallelujah. 
Amen? So it's wonderful to see. Remind your neighbor again, we are family. Come on, we are family. This is a family, the family of God. So it says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and are God's household, having been built up on the foundation of what? So the family of God is built on the foundation of the apostolic prophetic. Foundation of apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building fitly joined together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you were also being built up together into a dwelling of God where? We are here in a physical locality, but yet our composition and constitution is in the spirit. Right? Is in the spirit. Very important that you understand this. I like in this verse the constant use of the term build. The whole building, built up, being built. Can you see that? I want to allude to it shortly in a moment. But the family of God is a place where you are built up, not broken down. You come here to be built up a spiritual house corporately to contain the fullness of the Christ. Amen? Every time you walk through these doors and you interact with the saints under the teaching of your spiritual father, you should leave built up, more built up than you were ever were before. Amen? So the building dynamic and the family characteristic of the church are inseparable. If you say you are family, if you say that we are household, automatically you are implying this is a place where building takes place. Next time you say to your spouse, honey, let's go to church. Say, you must say, let's go to be built up and let's go to build. We go to be built up and we go to build others. Make the house strong. Tell your neighbor we're going to have a strong house. I declare over you that you will be a built house. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. In fact, that the strength of the built dynamic within the church is the strength of its family ethos. Many people think a church is strong for various reasons. Oh, we are a strong church. What makes you strong is your family characteristic. In Genesis 13, just quickly, remember Lot was captured by a coalition of four kings. He lived in Sodom, remember? He's Abraham's nephew. Not so? In, in chapter 13, Lot leaves Abraham. He's captured in a war. Abraham decides to go rescue his his, his nephew, not so? What did Abraham, the Bible says he only had 318 servants and three friends. But he goes against a coalition of four major Persian empires. He not only rescues Lot, kills the head ancho of that coalition, Chedaloma. He slaughters him. How can a man prevail against such odds? It's because Abram is father. Everyone say father. And the Bible says he had 318 servants or sons born in his house. That tells me he functioned, he governed, he led by a family principle or family characteristic. He built his household by family and the Bible says he led them. The Hebrew word led is ruch. means he poured himself into them. 
Not so? He poured himself into them. So his military strength that caused him to overcome a coalition of four Persian empires was his family ethos. I firmly believe the strength of the church is its family characteristic. Don't think your church is strong because the gifts are flowing, but there's no love. Don't think your church is powerful because you have huge buildings, but no love. A group that is strongly centered in the family principle can overthrow major odds stacked up against them if the principle of family and love prevails in the group. I want to stress it again. Your military might is actually the family factor. Everyone say the family factor. Family factor is your strength. If you can build family, you are well on your way to becoming a built house. Hebrews 3 from verse 1 to 6 uh, says the following, uh, from verse 4 onwards, For every house is built by someone, and the builder of all things is who? God. The builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, and as a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm unto the end. Now, again it stresses that the builder of the house is God. Christ is, Moses was faithful in his house as a servant. The contrast with Christ, he's not faithful in the house, he's faithful over the house. Moses was faithful in the house as a servant, Christ is faithful as a son over the house. Don't see yourself with a servant mentality in the house. See yourself as a son having responsibility over the house. Hmm? Don't just say that's Justin, our pastor's responsibility. When you come here with a sense of responsibility for everyone, it is proof that the spiritual father now is starting to pervade in and through you. Amen? So you can either be a servant in or you can be a son over. Amen? And we are not after the order of Moses, we are after the order of, of Christ. Amen? The guys with servant mentalities often come in and say, Give me, give me, give me, give me, what can this church do for me? Right? But those who are sons over the house, they come with a sense of burden and responsibility. Yes, they come to be blessed by the word. But they're always there to show, put their shoulder to the plow and shoulder the responsibility. Amen? Hallelujah. I declare unto you a new breed of sonship is arising after the order of Christ. Amen? Hallelujah. Matthew 16, 18, I say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will do what? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. This verse has got many principles locked up in it. Time does not permit us to adequately prosecute it. But, just to emphasize, Jesus said, who is building his church? He himself. So, the gates of hell, or Hades, will not overpower a built church. It doesn't say, my church 
and therefore the gates of hell will not overpower it. The emphasis is on the building in the church that Satan cannot overpower. You can have a church, but if the church is not built according to biblical standard, Satan will run havoc in that place. But if the church is built according to biblical protocol, Satan's attempts will not succeed against the built dynamic within the church. There are many aspects to building, and we're going to focus on one in particular um, tonight, and you will see shortly. Now, let's look at the Hebrew terms, and the Greek term for house. The Hebrew term is bayith, and the Greek term is oikos. Now, Strong's, most people rely on Strong's as a reliable source of interpretation for Greek and Hebrew interpretation. He says this about the Hebrew term bayith for house. It refers to a house, right? And it, it's applied variously, but especially what he says. A eh? family, not so? Of oikos, he says the following. It's a dwelling. And he says this, by implication, a eh? family, right? When we refer to the term household or house, most people refer to the physical structure, not so. But sometimes a house is not necessarily a home. Sometimes you can have the structure, but you do not necessarily have family in the structure. I'm sure you can relate to, to this. Right? And I want to encourage you. What we need restored to the body of Christ is the frequency of family back to the house of God. Remind your neighbor again, we are family. We are heirs of the Father, joint heirs with the Son. I've changed the words to we are firstborn sons of His kingdom. We are family. We are one. See it again. We are heirs of the Father. We are joint heirs with the Son. We are children of His kingdom. We are family. We are one. Tell your neighbor, we are family. We are somebody else behind you. We are family. We are, and the person in front of you, we are family. We are one. That, that song is true. Heirs of the Father, joint heirs with His Son, firstborn sons of the kingdom or children of the kingdom. And we are family and we truly are one. Amen. Now, for example, Psalm 127 says, Unless the Lord builds, the Hebrew word is bana. Unless the, the Lord builds the bayith, Old Testament Hebrew, the family. So who's building the family? The Lord. Unless He builds the house, it says, they labor in vain that, that build it. This word bana, not banana, bana. Right. <laughs> In case you get fruity on me. Right. The word build in the Hebrew is bana, and the word bana is derived from another Hebrew word called ben. I name my cat Ben. We have a cat at home, and his name is Ben. 
Because the word Ben means son. Son. Again, the word Bana is derived from Ben. So if you reread this psalm, you can read like this. Unless the Lord builds by sonship, anybody else who is building not by that principle is building in vain. Hmm? Unless the Lord Banas builds the house by the principle of raising sons in the house, any other building is in vain. In fact, the meaning of Ben in the Hebrew, don't have it on, on the screen yet, on the slides, the meaning is Ben is a builder of the family name. The word son in the Hebrew means one who builds the family name. If you call yourself son, inadvertently what you are saying is, I am a builder, not a breaker. I build the family name, which is father, son, spirit. I'll, I'll speak shortly to that in a moment. Amen? And you know, who knows Psalm 127? More or less. The latter part of this says, it is vain, verse 2 I think, it says, it is pointless you staying up late and rising up early. Right? For he gives to his beloved in his sleep. Right? Many of you read the scripture from the King James, he giveth his beloved sleep. That's not in the original Hebrew. And check like the New American Standard Version. You can read the ESV, for example. It says, he doesn't give his beloved sleep, but he gives to his beloved in his sleep. Changes the meaning, not so? That's why I love sleep. It's the time when I get from the Lord. He gives to his beloved in his sleep. What is the best form of rest? Tell you never sleep well tonight. Sleep time is download time from the heavens. Amen? But sleep is a depiction of rest. Everyone say rest. Right? So that verse said, It is vain for you to stay up late and to rise up early. In other words, if you stay up late, rise up early, you're reducing your sleep time and you think that by working more hours, you're going to get more done. And the verse says, It's pointless doing that because He actually gives to you while you are sleeping. So if you reduce your sleep time, you're reducing your download time from the heavens. Now why do men want to work by the sweat of their brow to get more done when God says there's a better way of building? If you raise sons, you will strive less in the flesh to get the job done. And you, sonship will bring you into peace and rest. And you will start to work in rest, not laboring by the sweat of your brow. Amen? Hallelujah? Lest the Lord banas, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the building dynamic within the church. And the building dynamic within the house of God relates to the raising up of sons in the house. Right? And basically, you raise up sons by delivering the word of the Lord to them. To configure Christ in them. Right? 
Paul said this. Take this reference down if you're taking notes. He said this in Colossians chapter 1 from verse 28 onwards. He says, I preach, I teach, I warn every man. Why does Paul teach, preach, and warn? He says, I preach, I teach, I warn every man that I might present every man perfect in Christ. To this I labor according and striving according to the power that worketh in me, he says. So what's the goal of preaching, teaching, and warning? Correcting. We want to produce Christ in every man. The objective of teaching is so that the nature and character of Christ will be formed in you. You see, He the Son must be formed in you. That's how we build. Many people incorrectly quote, I think it's Mark 3.30, where John the Baptist said, many people incorrectly say, He said, I must decrease, and He must. He didn't say that. John said this, He must increase, but I must decrease. People reverse the order, and it's important to keep the order. It says first, He must increase, and I must decrease. But I must decrease. In other words, if you allow Him to increase, it will automatically decrease you. Right? Your decrease is based upon the allowance to which you make Christ increase. You cannot decrease to increase Him. You've got to allow Him to increase, and His increase in you will displace the flesh. Right? In you. Amen? It, it automatically happens. So Paul says, I teach, I preach, I warn every man to present every man perfect in Christ. Perfect in Christ Jesus. That is how we build. And time won't permit us to explain that further from the scriptures. But essentially that's, that is how it works. In Ephesians uh, 3, we read this yesterday. Verse 14, Paul says, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every what? Family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Question, is the church the family of God? Again, so, the family of God must derive its name. And yesterday we defined name. Name alludes to nature and function, right? Uh, character and destiny, identity and destiny. Who you are and what you do. So the church, the church's name, the church's nature and function must be derived from the fathering grace present within the heavenly father. If the church is the family of God, every family must derive its name from the, from the heavenly father. The church must not derive its name from the South African government. Right? You cannot Base how you function and your form, both your form and function, because you cannot derive that from our constitution. If you do, you will be contemporary, you will be accepted, but you will have no relevance in the spirit. Hmm? We're going to be tested in these things. So when our government says same-sex marriages are permissible and I require the church to marry those persons, we stand up and say, no, not so. Our nature and function is derived from another source, not from that legality. We cannot change who we are to accommodate pressures in the world. Not so? Yes! We're going to stand up and be counted for these issues. 
And we will be challenged from a whole range of issues. And you know, the challenge to the modern day church, because there's so much ideology, so much postmodern thinking that is creeping into the church, that is challenging biblical principles, we're going to stand up and say, no, we are the family of God. Right? Our name and our, 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 our function is derived from our Heavenly Father. Not from any other earthly system. Amen? Now, Ephesians 4, I, I read this yesterday, I, I want to emphasize it again. There is one body, Ephesians 4, 4 to 6, there is one body, one spirit, just so you were also called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Now, God is over all, through all, and in all. I said to you, the fathering grace, the grace of the Heavenly Father, wants to permeate every member of the body of Christ. Right? This is very, very important. The fathering grace wants to permeate every member of the body of Christ. When you have a spiritual father stand before you, a man to whom you sub- must submit, and he teaches you the word of the Lord so as to form Christ in you, he stands before you, he stands as a representation of the Heavenly Father. Right? No man can truly father another man. We are only able to father representatively as we allow Him, the Heavenly Father, to rep- represent in us and we can father others. We can't do this in our own strength. Right? That's why the calling to father spiritually is a very high calling. You represent God to your people so that every one of your people will ultimately themselves become a, an extension of the representation of Father in their world. Again, He wants to be overall supremacy. He wants to be through all and He wants to be in all. Very important. If in any church I go to and I cannot smell or discern Father, something's wrong. Something's drastically wrong. Now, I'm just busy laying a foundation. Everyone say the mystery of God is Christ. And now it's going to get a bit technical. But I want you to follow me. Listen carefully. We need to discuss these scriptures. Colossians chapter 2 from verse 2 to 3 says the following. That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of what? God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself. This word is in italics in most Bibles, Himself, meaning it was not in the original text. So the, word, the verse should read, the knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ. Right? I'll explain shortly. So can we conclude, the mystery of God is Christ, yes? According to the scripture. It says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and, and knowledge. Now, the word mystery in the Greek is the Greek term mysterion. It's a derivative of the Greek word mu, and mou means to shut them up. 
Many people should learn this word actually. (laughs) To shut them out means to not to declare a thing. You're keeping it a secret so it remains a mystery. It's not disclosed to you so you don't know. Right? That's the meaning of the Greek word mysterion. But it basically means a secret or a mystery, a thing that is hidden or secret, not obvious to the understanding, a hidden purpose or counsel. So it's out of your understanding. It's out of your worldview. Something cloaked. Now, is God a mystery? Yes. But He does not want to remain a mystery. He wants Himself to be known to the earth. Not so? Do you know, I said to you last night, you are the university of the heavens. You are Son. Amen? God is Spirit but he wants to make himself known to the earth in a very physical, visible, and demonstrable way. Spirit can't be seen, but spirit requires a a body to be seen. It says of the pattern son, our Lord Jesus Christ, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, the Word was with God. The Word became what? The Word must become flesh and dwell among men. And we beheld what? We beheld His glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father. This verse 14. Full of grace and truth. Right? So glory must have two components. Grace and truth. Full of the glory of the Father, full of grace and truth. But the point is this. We beheld His glory. Glory is always seen. And glory relates to the exact representation of the character of God. If you say that you have God's glory, what you're saying is, I have the exact representation of the character of God. Right? Glory is not bright lights and a funny gooey feeling. Glory is simply the exact representation of the character of God in a man. When Jesus became a man and became flesh, John says, we saw the glory of God. And what was in the glory of God? Grace and truth is how you get glory. But that's another teaching altogether. Right? In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, remember? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the length of His train filled the temple. Right? Seraphim, each having six wings, with two they cover their eyes, with two they cover their feet, and with two they did fly. And the one said to another, they were not saying this to the Lord. It says the one seraphim said this to the other seraphim as they flew around the throne of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of His glory. What is glory? The exact representation of the nature and character of God. Please tell it to your neighbor for emphasis. Glory is the exact representation of the nature and character of God. It's amazing to me that these angels, these seraphim, are right in front of God's throne, flying around, but they can't see Him because their eyes are... And they say, for us to understand His glory, we have to look to the earth. The earth is full of His glory. So how is glory manifest on the earth? Glory is only manifest 
in a son in whom the word has become flesh. So when you take this word and you start living it out before men to see what you do, you showcase the glory of your father. Even angels are studying you to know about God. Angels do not know everything. Please get to understand this. They don't know the power of redemption. They are not heirs of salvation. You are heirs of salvation. According to Hebrews. It says they were designed to minister to you who is an heir of salvation. In fact, it, it suggests that angels are tiptoeing, if you study the Hebrew, is that they're peering into the earth, studying sons of God on the earth to get to know God. You are the university of the heavens. Angels are enrolling at you as an institution to understand their creator. Men on the earth need to study you, who God is. Hmm? How's your learning program? How's your curriculum? In other words, if people come and study your life, by how you live, how you think, how you behave, and your attitudes, you give people an estimation of God. So I certainly trust that you are portraying the right picture. Don't let it be the opposite case where your life is so far removed from the Word of God becoming flesh. And people look at you and they say, He claims to be the Son of God. But if I study His life, and if that life is reflective of His God, then I don't want His God. That will be a sad case. Amen? That will be very, very sad. You see what an awesome responsibility we as the family of God have? We derive our nature from the Heavenly Father. We must show forth the Heavenly Father in everything that we, we do. Amen? Everything that we do. So, I'll repeat again. Tell your neighbor, the mystery of God is Christ. So then, obviously, to know God, you must know Christ. Tamo Nairu taught me this. To know theology, you must know Christology. What is theology? Theology is the study of God. Christology is the study of Christ. But Christ is the mystery of God. God is a mystery, secret, hidden. So if you want to unlock the secret, you must, your pen code, T-T-T-T, is Christ. Christ is the access point to God. If you understand Christology, you uncover the fullness of everything that God is. Amen? Now, I'm going to explain it. This is going to be very difficult to explain, but please stay with me. Amen? You know, there's such a receptivity here. Thank you for it. You guys are so open. I must commend you for that. I can see you love God's Word and you love truth. Amen? And I know that God will take you even further. I prophesy over you. God will take you further and deeper into the hidden treasures in Christ. Amen. Amen. I like your, your, your nimble-mindedness is the only word I can think of. Tell your neighbor you are nimble-minded. <laughs> it simply means, in terms of your attitude, you can, you can be turned either way. Not that you are easily persuaded. The word nimble-minded means a, a strong-minded person 
but when he senses the need to adjust, he will. And he can turn whichever way. Right? You know what the Bible says? The heart of the king in the book of Proverbs is in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it any way he wishes to go. You must say that to the Lord. Lord, my heart is in your hands. I'm a king. You are the king of kings. So turn my heart any way that you want me to go. Amen? So be nimble-minded. I prophesy great change that is coming to this house. Great change is coming to your world. And in that season, you need to be nimble-minded. Lord, I recognize truth. We recognize that perhaps for a long time, we've been on a different path. But we, we recognize this is our kairos, an opportune moment that you're imposing upon our technology. So we recognize it. We will adjust. We will migrate. Blessed is the man, Psalm 84, whose heart is set on migration, on pilgrimage. Amen? I want to encourage you. Set your heart on a journey. Tell your neighbor, we are on a journey. In the spirit, I shoot the gun to start the race. To say that this journey has begun in the spirit. Amen? And I decree that you will end well. He who has begun a good work in you will surely perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. I say that with all sincere sincerity of heart and soberness in the spirit. I perceive that everyone in attendance here tonight, you are on a new path of discovery of new truth. Peter said this in 1 Peter 1.12, I said, I will not be negligent to remind you of the things that I've already said to you, so that you can be what? Established in the present truth. In other words, everyone say present truth. The truth that is presently coming to you, I want you to be established in it. Amen? It's exciting. Don't you feel like you're born again again? (laughs) You're born from above. I really perceive this in the Spirit. So to know God, we must know Christ. The study of God is theology. The study of Christ is Christology or Christology. So Christ is a principle that encapsulates all of deity. Christ is a principle that includes Father, Son, and and Spirit. Look at this verse. Colossians 2, verse 8 and 9. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, through empty deception. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principle of the world, rather than according to who? Rather than according to Christ. For in Him, what does it say? All the fullness of deity dwells how? Uh, not in not, it's not abstract spiritual form. It says it's in, in Christ, the man, Jesus Christ, in that is referenced here in this verse, the man who walked on the earth for 33 and a half years in his body, in the flesh, he had the fullness of, of deity dwelling in him. The Greek word for deity is theotis. We get the word theology from this. Theotis, which is translated as um, divinity, which is basically the state of being God or the Godhead. So this term deity is a biblical term, but theologians use it to indicate the triune God. Father, Son, and Father, Son, and, and Spirit. 
So it dwelled in him in bodily form. In his flesh he was able to showcase the Father, Son and Spirit. Do you know what when he died on the cross? 2 Corinthians 5 says, it says, For God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Hmm? God was in Christ, Jesus the Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Wherever you have the principle of Christ, in that economy, you will always have Father, Son, and Spirit present. Always. You can never ever talk Christ without referencing the fullness of, the fullness of, of deity. So then, Christ, I'll just a little diagram to help us understand. Christ represents Father, Son, and, and Spirit. The Father-Son dynamic, these terms, Father and Son, are family terms, not so. Terms that you normally use in a family. So they indicate the highly relational characteristic of, the, of deity. Right? The family ethos locked up inside of, of deity. Every family in heaven and on the earth derives its nature from the Father in heaven. As it is in heaven, so it must be on the earth. Anything in heaven and earth that claims itself to be family must have very strong relational dynamics vested in it. I don't see myself as the pastor of my church. I see myself as the father of spiritual sons that has given me to take care of. The, the era of pastor and members is obsolete. It's now an era of fathers and sons. Right? You heard him. Say it again. <laughs> I want to encourage you. The wineskin has changed. Right? You embrace those you lead as your sons in God. And there's an expectation that they begin to see you as a father in the Lord. It will change your leadership style. It will engender love, compassion, and understanding in the family of God. Remember yesterday I told you the Greek word for father is? Anyone remember the Greek word? Pate. The Greek word for family is? Patria. Patria is a derivative of? Pate. You can't have family without father. Right? You can't have the spirit of family without the grace of our Father. So in the Godhead, you have Father, Son, and, and Spirit. Now, He, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the administrator or that element or agency within the Godhead that makes the relational components possible to be experienced by men. I'll say it again. The Holy Ghost... The Holy Spirit is that part of the Godhead. He's a person. Who when the patent son who came in the flesh left the earth to go back, he said, remember he said, it is needful for me to go. Because if he does, if I don't go, he will not come. And remember John 14, what he said? I will not leave you comfortless, but I will send to you another comfort. The word comfortless literally in the Greek is, I will not leave you as orphans. Orphan, orphanity is the opposite of sonship. You're either a son or you're an orphan. An orphan is one with no father. 
So when he said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will send the Spirit so you'll always be fathered. And be comforted. When He, the Spirit, comes, listen carefully, the Spirit will bring the grace of Father to the earth. The Spirit also brings the grace of Son to the earth. Tell your neighbor you're not an orphan. You're not comfortless. And it says when He, the Spirit, comes, I go away, but He, the Spirit, will come so that you're not orphaned. That is why when, he, when we accept Christ, He the Spirit witnesses with my spirit that I am a what? A son of God. And Galatians 4.15 onward says that the Spirit of His Son comes into my heart that gives me the power to cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit of Sonship, it says Christ, the Spirit of Christ, the Son, enters my heart, making me a son, gives me the capacity to relate to Him as Abba, Father. So when He, the Spirit, comes to the earth, He brings the possibility of relating to Father and Son in the Spirit. Now, I want to further explain this. It's very important you understand this. There's a difference between the terms Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, and Christ in the New Testament. Whenever we use the term Jesus Christ, we reference the historical Christ or the humanity of the Christ. Not so? Right? When you read the term Christ Jesus, especially in Paul's writings, Paul uses this term often. You know why? Because Paul never knew Jesus Christ. Paul knew Christ Jesus. Paul did not know him as a man. The other... Twelve apostles walked with him for three and a half years and they knew him in terms of his historical Jewishness as a man, the son of, of, of God on the earth. But Paul knew him by revelation, remember? Right? The, the account on the, the road to Damascus where the light shone and he met the Lord and God spoke to him, Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Right? And there was this exchange and he surrenders his life. So Paul knew him by revelation. So Paul very often in his epistles would often refer to him as Christ Jesus. It refers to his resurrected, ascended position. Right? He left the cloak of humanity and he reverted back to his form that he always had from eternity past. Right? He is Christ Jesus. But the term Christ refers to the pre-existent, eternal Christ, the fullness of deity. The Bible does say that Jesus was the Christ. Right? And I said to you, whenever the... whenever You see, Christ is Father, Son, Spirit. In its pre-existent, eternal, pre, a timeless dimension, every time the word Christ is used... It references, Christ on its own, it references Father, Son, and Spirit, the fullness of deity. But in an earth-based context, it dwells bodily in a Son. So the fullness of deity, whenever it wants to visibilize itself and make itself known in the earth, the container in which it comes is Son. Every Son has got the potential to display Christ 
who is Father, Son and Spirit. Amen? Sila. Pause for a moment. Think deeply on these things. Meditate. Cogitate. Just don't agitate. <laughs> Think deeply. Let the truth sink deeply into our spirits. Now, for example, I said to you, Christ in an earth, in the earth can only be seen visibly as, as sun. Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter answered, you are what? You are Christ. You are the Christ. Son of the? Son of the living God. You are Christ, son of the living God. So who do men that I, who men say that I the son of man am? Peter said, you are the Christ. I can, you know what Peter saw? Peter saw a man, a Jew, Jesus, standing in front of him, but Peter looked beyond his humanity. Peter says, you are representing something before me, which I see as the Christ. And we know from Colossians 2, that any Christ principle has what in it? Father, Son, Spirit. But because you're in an earth-based context, all of those three manifest in the earth in sonship. Son is our designation and our destination. It has the power to express all of who God is. That's why the Son says, if you've seen me the Son, you've seen the You've seen the Father. And to us a child is born, a son is given his name, the name of the Son, one of which shall be called Everlasting Father. I want us to, to I'm stressing these things so that they, they can become um, real, palatable, but be able to be experienced in all of our lives. Never ever disqualify yourself tonight. Don't think less of yourself than what God made you to be. You are a walking representation of all that God represents. Father, Son, Spirit, in your world, to your family, at work. You are the reason God needs to come into the earth. You are the container. At your workplace, you are simply an excuse for God to impact the people there. Amen? You're all on full-time ministry. I said these things to you last night. I want to endorse them. Amen? Now, look at the following scriptures. I have the gift of continuation. <laughs> I jokingly say to the guys at church at the back, they used to have a clock there. I say, take the clock and put a calendar there. <laughs> I don't want, to see a, I don't want to see a clock, I want to see a calendar. Let's go by days rather. Not by hours, you know. This is so much to share. Right? Can we take just about 10 or 15 more minutes? Amen? It's not really a question, just saying. <laughs> to be polite, amen. Look at this amazing scripture. Second John chapter 1 and verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge what? Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the so there is a spirit that is anti the Christ principle. There's a spirit that is working against this principle that we are trying to teach called Christ. One way in which you will discern, there are many ways, but one way in which you will discern an antichrist spirit, they do not acknowledge, firstly, number one, 
that Jesus Christ came in as a man, was a literal human being. God in the flesh came to men on earth. I often say the Son of God became the Son of Man to teach sons of men how to behave like sons of God. He came to model or to pattern, to show us a case study of the first Adam failed. Remember his sin. But Jesus is called the last Adam. Right? The last Adam, the second man. Adam was the first man. Right? Remember he is the, he's not the second Adam. If the second Adam means it's the third, fourth and fifth Adam. The last Adam means there's no more Adams after him. He's the last one. Right? So he's the, he's the last Adam or the second man, as, as Corinthians will tell us. Where Adam failed to model how a man should live on the earth as a representation of the Son of God, showcasing the glory of God to all of creation. Jesus, the Son, came as a man to show us how men on earth can showcase the Christ. But he lived in, and he did it in his, in his flesh. The Bible says in all points he was tempted like any other human being, yet without Sin. He overcame the world and he said, if I, over, if I have overcome, so you too can overcome the world. Amen? You all have the power to adequately represent him. I really believe that. But it was, this Antichrist spirit is more than just an attack on was Jesus really a man or not? It's, it's also an, an attack on is it possible to be the Son of God in the earth today in your flesh? And accurately represent him. That's the attack of the Antichrist spirit. And I'm here to declare, you can. It is possible. Because it's biblical. You'll be surprised how many people struggle with this issue. Can I be an adequate, accurate representation of all that he is? To my family, to my colleagues at work? To my sportsmates on the sports field, can I represent the Christ in my world? My answer yes. You've got to believe it in your mind tonight. Yes. If you, if you leave this building saying, I cannot, you're already starting on the back foot. You're already starting in defeat. I'm here to empower you tonight. You have the potential and the power to be an accurate, exact representation of Christ on the earth because your elder brother our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ showed us how to do it and he lives within you if he increases you will decrease and he will become all that he is in you amen Amen? don't focus on decreasing focus on him increasing if he increases you will automatically diminish in the light of his increase amen amplify his principles Um, exponentially within you. It says, watch for yourselves. Do not lose what you already have accomplished, but that you might receive a a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in what? In the teaching of Christ. Does not have who? God. Remember I said to you, you must understand Christology to know theology. right? And then it says, the one who abides in the teaching has both who? This verse plainly says it. The one who abides in the teaching or the doctrine of Christ 
will have both Father and Son by the Spirit. I'll show you. I'm adding by the Spirit because other verses will explain it. Let's get there quickly. So the doctrine of Christ or the teaching of Christ brings with it what? Father and, and Son. Right? Father and Son. That, that, that verse says. It's experienced through the, through the Holy Spirit who's been given to the earth to represent Father and Son in us. Ephesians 2.18 says, For through Him, and the context is talking about the, the sacrificial work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on the cross, it says, Through Him, the Son, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Through His death, I have access to my Father. I have access by the, by the Spirit that has been given to us. Ephesians 1.14 who, that is the Holy Spirit, is given to us as what? A pledge of our inheritance. With a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Now I want to talk about this word pledge. In the Greek, it's the Greek word arabond. Everyone say arabond. Arabond basically is earnest money or a pledge. It's basically a down payment. Something which stands for part of the price and paid beforehand to confirm the transaction. When Paul used this word pledge, it was like a down payment, a deposit, as a guarantee this transaction is confirmed and the rest of the payment is coming. Who is the pledge? The Holy Spirit is a guarantee, a pledge given to us by God. That the fullness of deity, Father and Son, will come fully with Him. Is your guarantee. Aren't you glad for the Holy Ghost? I love the Holy Spirit. Can't do without Him. Through Him I access Father and Son. He is the pledge of the fullness of my inheritance. Father and Son will come through the Spirit. Amen? Now... Okay, we finally get to Ruth. <laughs> Amen. How many read the book of Ruth? I'm going to introduce something in five minutes and we'll prosecute the matter thoroughly tomorrow morning. Amen. We're like in a law environment here. We prosecute the matter. Amen. How you read the book of Ruth is very important. Through what lenses you view it is very important. For me, the key and the clue to the book of Ruth is actually in the fourth chapter, right at the end. In Ruth 4.15, it says this about Ruth. Um, May he also be to you a restorer of life in your, uh, uh, of life and sustainer of your old age. Let me just explain this. Contextually, the he referred to here is Obed, the son that was born to Ruth and Boaz. They had a child, his name was Obed. So prophecy is saying, May he be, in this prophecy is given to Naomi. This is said to Naomi. May he, basically the child born to Ruth and Boaz, may he be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer in your old age. Then it says this, for your daughter-in-law who is Ruth, who loves you, is better to you than seven sons. So what is Ruth, in the book of Ruth, a perfect 
example and depiction of. Because seven indicates perfection, not so? But Ruth is better than seven sons. When Ruth comes to church, it's like eight people walking through that door. <laughs> Ruth is not seven. She's better than seven. It's fine if it's seven because I would have accepted that. It's perfection. But she goes one step beyond that. And I will demonstrate to you from chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and Ruth chapter 4, all of these principles that we laid out as a foundation last night and tonight, you will see them acted out in the life of this girl with the scriptures say she has gone beyond of perfecting sonship in God. Ruth is better. You know, when people ask me, how many people do you have in your church? At the moment, we have about 80 to 90 people, I think. But there are some guys, like Sean is one of them, and there are many others. There are some sons of mine in the Lord. If I were to count them, I have to count 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. <laughs> you know? One represents such stature. Now we're not counting members. We are weighing them at the door. Right? It's, it's, it's not how many people you have in your church. It's what each one represents. Right? You can do more with five sons than with a church of 5,000 members. The era of membership is obsolete in the spirit. This is a day for sonship in Christ. I'm telling you, you can move Port Alfred. This church can shake this town if the stature of each son is developed. There's no telling what God is able to do through you. If the nature of Father permeates this place as a family of God, if every son matures to a place of strength in Christ, there is no telling the resource that God will not give to you at your disposal to execute His business in this town. We need sons that are builders of the family name to rise up in strength. Ruth is one of those things. No, Ruth, the meaning has many names. The, the meaning of Ruth's name is varied. One of them is this, something worth seeing. The meaning of Ruth is something worth seeing. Ask your neighbor, are you worth seeing? In other words, is the church worth seeing? Is the church worth beholding? Is the church worth studying? In today's world, you mention the name church, and you get all kinds of reactions from the world. The church doesn't have a good representation in the world. But when Ruth walks on the scene, she's somebody that recruits the attention of everyone in the world. She's somebody worth seeing. Worth seeing. I want to encourage you. <laughs> Is your name Ruth? Oh, but she's just somebody worth seeing. <laughs> okay. Amen. So like, like the, the apostles renamed Joseph and called him Barnabas, we rename you Ruth in the Spirit. Amen. Now listen carefully. It says of this Ruth in verse 13, Boaz took Ruth as what? So 
Let me just say, if Ruth is a son, what does that make Naomi to her? A father. So when you read the book of Ruth, you don't read it as mother-in-law, daughter-in-law. That's reading it as a man. You've got to read the book in the spirit. As a spiritual man. Yes, operations and dynamics between a spiritual father and a spiritual son. Boaz, what will that make Boaz? Boaz becomes the representation of Christ. Boaz is a depiction of Christ in the book. Who does she marry? She marries Boaz. The spiritual father, Naomi, leads the spiritual son, Ruth, into intimacy with Christ, Boaz. And that relationship produces somebody, Obed, who becomes the father of Jesse, who becomes the father of David, Israel's greatest king, and the purposes of God strive. The spiritual father's role is to guide the spiritual son, not so much to himself. Consistently, Naomi guides Ruth toward intimacy with Christ, Boaz. What we see today in spiritual fathering and sonship, some spiritual fathers and, uh, are, are, are manipulating sons to basically fuel their own ambitions. My point is this. Ruth, I'm not sure if I have it on the screen. Oh, yeah, Ruth operates on two levels. She's both a son and she's a bride. Is not the church the bride of Christ? Yeah? Part of the goal of earthly spiritual fathering is to bring the church, the bride of Christ, comprised of sons, into greater intimacy with Christ, the bridegroom. It is that relationship that is going to produce something that will forever change the course and destiny of the earth itself. Right? Ruth is better than seven sons. Say it after me. Better than seven sons. You know, I studied this book a few years ago, and I couldn't get out of it. I read it, read it, reread it, studied it. And my cry within me, Lord, I want to be better than seven sons. And I'll explain what it means in the Spirit. Better than seven sons. And I pray this will become your cry. I pray that in all of your interactions with your spiritual father, you get to know your Lord Boaz, who is our, our Christ. Amen? Fullness of deity. Father, Son, Spirit. Your intimacy with Him will produce something in the air. But... Ruth will never become intimate with Boaz without listening to counsel from Naomi. Naomi's role is critical. But like I said, the relationship of spiritual father and son is not the destination. It's the process that leads you to the result, which is intimacy with Christ. That will change the course of the world forever. Amen? Amen. Just sit. Just close your eyes. Lift up your hands. No, you, don't, you don't need to stand.
Father, our hearts long for you. We cry, Abba, Father, by the Spirit that you have given unto us. We are your sons in the earth, and we strive for perfection, to adequately and accurately represent you in all that we do and say. That is our cry, Father. We long for greater intimacy with you. We long for moments with you of where we can interlock. Your heart becomes ours. Your mandate becomes ours. Your will becomes ours. Not my will, but thy will be done. I pray, Father, I sense in the Spirit that union and intimacy with you is going to produce something within the life of everybody present tonight that's going to change the course and the destiny of Port Alfred forever. We speak to you, loving Father. We ask in prayer for this city that you would impose your will, impose your character upon it. I pray the city will become a fathering city, even to many round about it. I pray the grace of Father will be so rampant here that it will be notable and recognizable by all who pass through it. I pray this city will, will, will become like a magnet in the spirit. It will start to become so attractive, even to servants of God that will observe its development in the spirit. Father, we ask you, seriously, Father, we present our lives, this church and the churches present here, we present it to you, and we ask, use us as a place to lay your head. Come and rest your head, the head, the genius, the mind of Christ. Come and rest it upon this body. Let this family be, have a character that's derived from your nature, loving Father, in the heavens. We don't know much of the, even the things that we ask for, for we speak as we see. But loving Father, I pray in the weeks, months and years to come, bring formation and definition to your purposes. We pray again, not our will, but thy will be done. I pray nothing will threaten the building process of the household of faith, the family of God in this jurisdiction. Nothing will impede its development. I ask for special grace to protect it, to preserve it. That there will be no dilution. There will be no threat that will be successful to unseat its placement by the, by the hand of your great power. We entrench it solidly in the spirit now. And we ask, let this be a household that you have built against which the domain and the gates of hell will not prevail. We ask, O oh God, that many sons will be raised up in all the churches present here tonight. I ask for, the, for builders of the family name, for bends in the spirit, that will build a house according to design. We ask this in your great name, and we do so with great thanksgiving. Amen. 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 The Lord bless you.